0: Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, as ever, Joe Robinson, and I'm joined by James Spender. James, how are you?
1: Good morning, Joseph. I am uh, very well. It's a little earlier than normal, though, isn't it? Because we had to get up to talk to someone quite
0: special today. We did. We've got a special guest on today's podcast: the man, the myth, the chosen son, Eurosport's Carlton Kirby. The 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 commentator of many of our sport's greatest moments, the voice that we hear on Eurosport alongside Sean Kelly, a divisive figure, as we discussed with him, in a very long but interesting interview, I believe you'll agree with me, James.
1: Yeah, I think so. Stick with it. It is quite long, but I mean, he tells a brilliant yarn, does Carlton. And Mm. it does make me a bit sad during it when we did touch on some of the uh, criticism that he does face so i think it's it's completely
0: unfounded um mainly because he's a really really wonderful bloke it seems very lovely bloke um before we get into the interview shall we do our things we like things we don't like
1: why why the devil not let's go i'm going to ask you first tell me wait, do tell wait, me joseph wait, wait the, 3 or, two, one. Oh, oh. jingle we'll get there one day. Uh, I'll start with you, Joseph. I'm going to ask you today,
0: what is it that you like? James, what I like is riding around in your own area. So, we, on Monday, James, you came and joined me down in Kent for a ride that is going to feature in Cyclist Magazine, in which I took you around 100 kilometres of my local favourite roads. Um, And we are a privileged few in which we've ridden in many many places around this world and up some many beautiful climbs but i think we can both agree that our ride around the kentish lanes and the north downs on monday was just frankly very enjoyable
1: it really was it was it was top banana it was so hot i don't think i've Mm. suffered in heat like that for a long long time and i'm normally pretty good riding in the heat i don't complain too much But yeah, it was, it was, but it was beautiful. Uh, Kent, this time of year, lavender is popping purple. Those lovely stately homes are twinkling in the sun, looking uh, very, it's a conservative place, isn't it, Kent? It's a bit funny like that, but you know, it's a beautiful place. Um, I do, my family's from there on my mum's side, um, got a real affinity for the place and it was a great ride with you and your pops as well. Paul Robinson, Joseph's dad. Thank you very much for driving our photographer, Mike, around. Uh, what a lovely bloke as well your your father was or is. Or I hope he still he, is a lovely bloke.
0: I mean, he enjoyed the day off of work, so and he enjoyed the free lunch, his ham and chips. So, um, but something I don't like that came out of that ride was I was riding a bike with tubeless wheels, and I feel like we are constantly moaning about discs, brakes and tubeless. Uh, but as you remember, I punctured on a descent on Monday, um, and the tubeless wheel setup that I was using didn't have any sealant in it. So the tire didn't seal and we had to just replace it with a tube afterwards. So that was something I didn't
1: like. Well, yeah. And I didn't like that either. That really annoyed me about that bike. It came to us one, I'm I'm presuming there's sealant in the front wheel. Who, who bloody knows, but there was no sealant. It absolutely would have sealed with sealant. But what you have to remember, my friend is that same puncher would have meant an instant deflation if you look at the size of that hole instant deflation the way that a butyl tube works on that descent whereas actually because it's a tubeless tire it just goes down quite slowly because the tube inside doesn't effectively burst like a balloon so mm. put that in your
0: tubeless hating pipe and smoke it i will do uh james something you like something you don't like
1: uh i really really like my new coffee machine
0: oh yeah i heard about, about this what it is well, you can yeah. tell the listener, I um, already know, and I'm steeped thought,
1: in jealousy. Steeped in jealousy, as the, well, actually, no, I'm not steeping my coffee, I'm uh, making espresso. I got uh, a Rocket R58 coffee machine. It oh. is a joy to behold. It's It looks like something, it looks like a kind of steam engine from the 2050 future. It is quite incredible. It's very shiny. It weighs 30 kilos, that weighs more than most dogs and some small adults. It is an absolute beast, and I'm finally I've finally got almost dialed it in. Uh, any coffee geeks out there will know that it's not as simple as just pressing some buttons and watching some black stuff come out. There's all kinds of weighing and timing and grinding that you can do, and I'm not that good at it,
0: but I'm going to get better. It's a very expensive doorstop at the moment.
1: It's a terribly expensive doorstop. I mean, I just Did like you... to fill my house with things that take up space and I don't use, light bikes and uh tajines
0: um did you manage to sell the grinder that came with it
1: i haven't sold the grinder yet no so i don't know if it's appropriate but if anybody wants a masra electronic automatic mini uh i'll do it for about 500 quid they retail around 900
0: there you are big deal there bargain of the century and something you don't (laughs) like
1: james (laughs) uh something i don't like i don't like under bottom bracket brakes there are very few bikes that have them these days. I'm not going to mention any names, but I've got a test bike with one at the moment. It's just a really bad place for a brake. So instead of it being... So it's a rim brake, old school. Instead of the rim brake being on preferable. seat stays. Preferable, exactly. It's un, it's kind of scrolled away under the near, near under the bottom bracket. So it's pinned onto the chain stays. And it does look really, really neat. However, it just is an ineffective place to put a brake. And the space that you're afforded because of the crank means that the brake itself—it's not just because actually that's a quite a flexy part of the frame—and with a certain wheel set you can actually hear it rubbing. If you've got a wheel set that's got a um, texture brake surface, you can hear it rubbing when you're out the saddle. It's also just you just don't get the leverage. It's got a dura race brake on there, which is like the probably the best under BB brake you can get, and it's still crap, and it still experiences <laughs> loads of brake fade, and it still makes me want to claw my eyes out and go, "Why are you doing this?" Um, so there's that. And then also another one, uh, just to get a proper moan on, hard to open energy products. Because I feel like they shouldn't be difficult to open. I mean, there should be the teeth test. On a bike, every energy product should be openable with one hand and your teeth. And if you can't do that, it has to go back to the drawing board, the packaging. The, and it sounds kind of ridiculous, but you, man's got to eat, right? And if you're busy tearing infinitely smaller pieces of foil off a chocolate bar, and that's the other one. Don't cover your energy bars yeah. with chocolate. Yeah,
0: no, no cycling treat should be made of chocolate.
1: No, no, that, not unless that is something I agree
0: with. It just melts, and it doesn't matter if you're in the deep of winter. The body heat will still melt the chocolate, and it will become a mess. The body heat will. It will become and an absolute mess but some of the annoyances around packaging some of it is like safety packaging in which you would need a set of scissors it's as if they're trying to stop kids getting into some cowpole um yeah And it is it, and it doesn't like make that.
1: any, any like sense yeah it doesn't make any sense I mean, you wonder who like yeah there are certain things you just wonder did anyone use it before they started selling it and i think maybe the answer is no
0: so yeah well, there's I'm, that but, uh, hey, i'm glad you got that off your that chest Yeah, Yeah, we did have a really lovely time in Kent. I had a really nice fish finger sandwich. So, you know, swings and roundabouts, as we like to say on this this show. Um, Let's get into the episode, James, without further ado. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we were honoured to be joined by the voice of Eurosport cycling commentary, Colson Kirby. So, without further ado, here it is. Carton, it is customary at the moment, isn't it? To ask everyone, how was your lockdown? That's the question you have to ask everyone. And how was your lockdown? How was the break from commentary and how good is it to be back in the booth?
2: Well, it's great to be back in the booth, to be honest. Uh, Although you don't have anyone sitting next to you because we're all in separate booths now. So, unfortunately, when when you're about to make a howler, you can't get a jab in the ribs from Matt Stevens or or, or, uh, Brian Smith to say, uh, you're going wrong notes can't be passed to you so you know uh it's it's been a funny old break, uh, lockdown really because um we we did actually put out and produce some historical programs we did the Giro as a hist- historical mm-hmm. the last seven years we secured rights to so <clears throat> excuse me we could pick and choose um a few of the best stages that had happened uh in that great race over the last few years uh, so that kept the wolf from the door. But a lot of uh, commentators, and particularly sort of freelancers, which most of us are, really suffered because there was no work. Um, so you just had to rely on, you know, I'm lucky enough to have uh, a, a wife who's a teacher. So she carried on through the lockdown. So that kept uh, finances where they need to be. But professionally, it's really tough uh, to know you know, who's doing what, who's staying on top of it. And so when we came out of the re emergence of um, uh, after the lockdown, the difficulty was knowing who would be on it because there's no kind of form predictors. And we would have had that right the way through the season. We started to get it in the early season. <coughs> I mean, I came out of the lockdown raving about Lutchenko. Yes, excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Um, because he had such a great top to the season, and then yeah. obviously he went and laid an egg during the uh, uh, during all of the the lockdown. He's come out stinking. Um, <laughs> you know, he just hasn't hasn't got it. And I thought potentially he might be the next. Uh, he might have a run like Philippe did last year. Yeah, um, Philippe, You know, nobody thought would go well. I predicted he would. Um, I was did an evening at Sigma Sport actually, where I said I think. Uh, that somebody just threw in that curveball right at the end. Who's going to win the Tour de France? <clears throat> and I said, I think it may well be a Frenchman this year. They'll certainly go very well. And watch Julian He's 150 to 1. <clears throat> and um, they they didn't burst out laughing, but the mirth was there. <clears throat> and then um, uh, it came to pass that he went well. This year, because of the lockdown, it's really impossible. And I've mm. been saying, anyone who's cared to listen, I think the clock might be dialed back on a few of the um, the the old older names. Those who sort of you think they must be in the autumn of their career, because they're the kind of guys who'd have the discipline and the knowledge and the just the capability really to actually keep themselves fit, to know what's required, and indeed to come out of lockdown absolutely all guns blazing. And that's why I think you know I've been saying to people, watch watch your round for goodness sake. Every time he's I think I alluded to it yesterday. Whenever anything came up for his team, his hand went up. So, it, you know, you get demands all the time um, on you for events and virtual events, etc. He did them all. He did absolutely everything. So
0: I said yesterday, he's one of the fittest that there is out there for sure because of knowing this fact. And he's and sure. he's, balan- he's balancing all that with definitely yeah. his long standing campaign to become a Colombian president in the, in, the, <laughs> in, in retirement as well. So. well he's he's related to most of the nation i think <clears throat> that's
2: why he's um that's why he uh i mean the, there are various stories that go around about rigoberto but one of them is that um which is a fact is that his his family have exponentially grown and you get that when you come from a very poor background and you have some success it's what did for Pantani he was basically had you know 50 150 mouths to feed which is why you know he one of the driving forces for his uh, erroneous end to his uh, his professional career and did his life ultimately so i've always had a soft spot for Rigoboto because he goes home and he's expected to basically support an exponential amount of people via his family so um it he is he's got that little magic story behind him, but more than that at the moment, I think he's he's gonna come out of lockdown brilliantly. So as for me, um well Rusty probably <laughs> sums it up. Um, you know, but you can hear that <clears throat> I'm still clearing my my chest this morning as I wake up. It's not because I'm ill, um, but it's just that when you are constantly commentating, um, you basically have to catch up with your air passageways and the rest of it nobody nobody thinks about it um if you're not a broadcaster but if you're doing something like cycling there are some sports which have 100 percent commentary and cycling is one of them uh some of the other sports i do are likewise motorsport for example and we go and do the 24 hours of le mans that's a challenge so you don't stop speaking whereas other sports like um snooker like tennis you respect the shot. Yeah, exactly. You respect the shots when you you basically do what the crowd do. Uh, I I think that's the rule of thumb. So um, in cycling, the crowd just screams their head off and so do we uh, (laughs) constantly Um, because it it just feels natural. Whereas in snooker or golf, you know, a guy stands up and addresses the ball. There's no reason for a commentator to shut up at that point, but the crowd is. And so it just sounds a bit odd. Mm. Um, So to maintain the magic, you do that. So, I get into the commentary position <clears throat> and I'm a couple of weeks into it now since we restarted. And honestly, um, it's, it's like I, I, I need to send a chimney sweep into my lungs really, um, mm-hmm. to uh, just clear everything out. So I'm phlegming up and also <clears throat> just re-remembering everything. Um, you know, when you have those quiet races and, and the top of the season, which gently introduces you to everybody and the teams, and their new livery and everything else Uh, but we've had uh, you've got time to um, embed in and and quite often some of the emerging riders you'll get to know their physical form as well so you'll be able to tell who it is um, from a helicopter shot and I don't know what's happened to um, uh, Pierre Latour but I can't recognize him at the moment I don't know whether he's Changed his body shape slightly. He looks lighter than he was. Mm. I don't know whether he's carrying a beard or something, but he looks very strange. Maybe it was just sunblock. He's he's still
0: as erratic, though. So once once you get the close-up, you can tell it's him sort of battling the bike. exactly. Yeah, just rocking all over it. But, uh,
2: yeah. Um, So all of those things that would have led to a comfortable mid-season where all the action's happening. Um, Basically, we've had to hit the ground running. And so... You know, it's a,
0: it's occasionally, it's a bit more difficult than it has been. Do you feel a bit more pressured? Because you sort of said, if you start the season normally with the Middle Eastern races, you know that less people are watching. It's just the nature of the beast because people are at work. Yeah. There's less interest in the UAE Tour. But now you've got to start with the biggest races in the calendar and you don't stop until the end of the season. So everyone's watching and you haven't got time to find your form. A bit like Lexi Lukashenko. <clears throat>
2: Well, exactly that. <clears throat> you know, we're, we're busy warming up while everything's red hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of that going on. It's a strange one, really, because we're expecting an awful lot of the ri- the riders as well. And, you know, to have... They don't know where their form is, surely, at the moment. Race fits and gym fits are very different things. And, uh, you know, I, I know a few of Zwift fit, but there's nothing there's nothing really like actually being out there rubbing shoulders and i think it may well account for some of the accidents we've had yeah. um you, you know that riders quite frankly have not worked their way into the uh, into the protocols um and indeed they're 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 snatching at it if you see what i mean there's very, there's a condensed calendar and you can't race it all so some of the races will be embedded, that you would have done um let's say last season are embedded under ones that you've been chosen for this year and so every single moment riders I think feeling that they're in the spotlight and they are snatching at performance and so you're getting a few I mean the amount of crashes that we've seen as well uh, wheel touches and things like that this is just natural sort of symbiotic stuff where you gradually just work your way into the peloton you you have a sense of who's around you and bike handling skills, for goodness' sake, you, you, that, that's one thing you can't do on a virtual race. You know, you, you don't know who's knocking into you and, uh, and and how your how your auto reactions
0: are. And, and so I think we're, that that explains why we've had so many um, so many crashes. So quite quite interesting. I spoke to Kern De Court recently, who's thirty eight, 38, one of the oldest men in the peloton. He, yeah. he went three months without riding a bike outdoors. So yeah, well,
2: he's had a holiday <laughs> he basically said uh that he wasn't going to do anything until the racing started properly he said i, I, I don't do uh, i i just uh, he said i'm a, i'm a, a professional racer i don't i don't do all this virtual stuff and so that was that
1: did you uh, <laughs> did you take a holiday as well or were you practicing is there a virtual commenta- commentary commentary <laughs> no, like
2: i wish there was um well <clears throat> there there was actually commentary on these rift races, but uh um it wasn't something I was invited to do so um yeah, I mean we kind of i i, I had the um i had a something called um the uh Carlton Kirby lockckhe podcast which uh ran to thirteen episodes and basically i did the virtual season, so I did the season that that should have been um and so I was doing kind of almost spoof reports but a bit bit of a travelogue around all the races as they would have been in the calendar and they went down quite well and I did a a few sort of uh, uh, closed doors zoom meetings (laughs) as well with people from around the world who paid a fiver to get in but honestly it was really small beans it was uh, you know I I could have bought myself um, I don't know three breakfast bowls on what I made out of it but uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't exactly um rockefeller stuff but you know it, it keeps your hand in and, and there were there was the odd bits and pieces some of the classic races came through and um, and I actually worked we did taiwan and a few others in the spring so there was a little bit of funding coming in that way but it's about keeping your mind to where it needs to be and not having the gift of all of those uh, races and, and and frankly all all those races at the beginning of the season Actually, include a lot of guys that are going to be on invitational teams. So when you're going out to the Middle East, they're usually, or many of them, I think most of them really, are run by um, RCS of uh, who handle the Giro. Yeah. And so, uh, and they're known for adjusting races to to suit some of the minor Italian teams because there's such a paucity, really, of of Italian teams knocking around at the moment. As you know, since the death of uh, Lamprey, you know, there's just nothing there. So they're really trying to encourage um, the base of cycling. So you get to see some of these guys that, frankly, you, you suddenly think, oh, I'll keep an eye on him. Um, and then you, you sound like a genius when you're coming through, but you've seen them in action and you know how good they are and how they're sort of competing with some of the um, top guys. And then all of a sudden they, they are there, and uh, but you've known them and you've seen them at the beginning of the season. Now, a bit more difficult because you know those guys have been completely off the radar you sort of keep tabs on the stars but you know some of those uh, sort of mid-range guys and the youngsters who are coming through it's it's
0: it, we may get some revelations i guess like uh, alexander vlasov from
2: asana he's P21 vlasov yeah exactly he's um he's he is amazing and um i could tell you that uh, dan lloyd has him at 175 to 1 he's now shortened to about 14s for the
0: Giro. <laughs> he, he got in there when it mattered then,
2: definitely. I, I, I won't, I won't, he sent me a, a message the other day saying, I think this is money in the bank. <laughs> 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 I won't tell you how much he's put on, but you'll be a... happy.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. So, Carton, is it, am I right in saying it, you are celebrating 25 years in the commentary booth this year?
2: Probably a bit more. Let's have a look. Um... In terms of live on site, the um, first one was ninety six, I think. Um, yeah, with uh, so that's twenty four. But uh, no, I, I was broadcasting before then. Um, sort of
0: uh, live commentary would have started in ninety two. Ninety yeah. two. And how um, did so? How did you get into commentary, and where did you start? Because it was it was was it cycling that you started in? I don't. I well,
2: I was uh, I was actually a rower, um, and half decent one as well. I've still got the Popeye forearms. If you can see the uh, big old muscles here, um, <clears throat> yeah, I was a rower, and we used to cycle to um, uh, to keep fit when we couldn't get an eight together, because um, obviously with an eight, unless you're um, kind of near near professional level. Um, you can't get an eight together all the time, so uh, I did, used to do a lot of cycling. Uh, I rode on the loon up in uh, Lancaster. Um, I was at university there, and uh, I headed the eight. Um, our arch enemies, of course, were uh, York as our Battle of the Roses. N- nobody knows about this race. <laughs> it's not quite the Oxford and Cambridge, but the Lancaster-York, houses of, it's a bit pretty big deal. Our boat was sponsored by Mitchell's Brewery. And um, uh, so we were quite popular as because they gave us a barrel of Mitchell's extra special. And so everyone wanted to row against us because they get to share the beer at the end. Uh, but no, I was a, um, I was a rower and uh, but cycling has always been really a major part of um, what I am. Even as a kid, you know, I uh, naturally I had a Carlton Corsa, uh, <clears throat> the old WorkSop bike, because I grew up nearby to the their factories actually. And um I, I still maintain that I actually invented mountain biking because I had uh, <laughs> I had a uh, I got being from Sheffield um, I had somebody formulate me a straight bar for my uh, from my, for my a road bike and put on uh, uh, nolies as well um, and the reason was I, I had a paper round but I only had seven papers to deliver but they were to hill farms and in all weathers on the Pennines because uh, it was outside of Sheffield towards Havisage up that way. And all the other paper boys and girls used to look at my bag and think fucking lazy bastard. And honestly it used to take me about two and a half hours to get around them all, just deliver these seven lousy papers. Um, but I had to adapt the bike to actually do it. And people used to think oh, it was a weird, weird looking machine. <laughs> I've still got the country seat actually that I had back then as well. Um, so yeah, it was, um, I came through, you, the question was, sorry, I've meandered, um, was how did I get there? Well, um, I've always had a great interest in cycling anyway. And then when I, um, I did a broadcast course, postgraduate broadcast course, because I'd always wanted to get into broadcasting. <clears throat> Even as a kid, I had the uh, audacity to go down to Sheffield City Library pull out all the American phone books. I don't know why they had them. Somebody, they must've just thought, well, what are we gonna do with this space? And they had all the yellow pages for all of the United States. And I pulled out these, uh, and just wrote to all the radio stations and said, how audacious is this? I said, Well, you know, uh, um, as, bearing in mind I was 14 at the time, um, as English music is quite clearly just taking over the world essentially, um, I think that we should have an English music show uh, at the weekends, and I'm the man to do it. <laughs> just wrote up to all of these places that sounded good, like Florida or whatever. And one guy wrote back and he said, in the United States, um, dear God, we have no space at the moment. I'm really sorry about that. But in the United States, there are probably 80,000 broadcasters in various radio stations, you know, of all different kinds of levels, all over the place. There's no reason why you shouldn't be one of them. And I just thought, well, yeah, that's great. So I had that ambition. When I went to university, I did the student radio stuff, which was dreadful. Uh, It didn't really fit with my rowing anyway. But when I left, I got, uh, because I did a a crap degree in marketing. I mean, what use is that? Anyway, I I had hopes of going into advertising or something like that. Something vaguely creative. And I got a job with Marketing Week magazine down in London and hated it. And I was, and then I got a job with Middle East money, writing the back page, which was called How To Spend It, a title which has now been nicked by the uh, Financial Times. So basically my job was, I got a big budget, was to go and live like a rich um, person from the Middle East. And so I was sent off to all of these luxury hotels, et cetera, et cetera. But I was, I was only 23, 22. And so I wasn't interested in any of the things that a, uh, a rich Saudi would be interested in at all. Anyway, I applied for, I thought, I've always wanted to get into broadcasting. And so I rang up the NUJ, as you do. And a weird thing happened. The head of the NUJ happened to be walking past the desk where the phone was ringing and picked it up. So it's a light ringing the National Union of Mine Workers and Arthur Scargill picks the phone up. So anyway this guy picks the, picks the phone up and he just basically took an interest and he said listen i can hear from your voice that you've clearly not been to oxbridge he said so you're not going to get anywhere with the bbc and their training scheme he said but there is one other course and that's at the london college of printing i suggest you have a go at that and he sent me some details and indeed after a half hour conversation he said i'll write you a little re- reference if you like so I applied for this broadcast course of which at the time it was the only one other than the BBC and I think they got hundreds and hundreds of applications and of course the fact that this guy from the NUJ, so one phone call is the reason that you're burdened with me. Um, so <clears throat> I, I got on this uh, radio course and on that I was then posted to Norwich, which is where the Alan Partridge uh, uh, analogy and connection comes, um, it's often something I'm called. Um, I did uh, Radio Norfolk. Uh, then I, I only did a fortnight with them and I was taken on by Look East, which is the BBC opt. Um, and started making little stupid programs about, I don't know, dog's birthdays. And I was always given the, the unfinely thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> some guy who bought himself a Harley Davidson after saving up silver coins since he was 12. Uh, th- that kind of stuff. And then um, I fell out of favor with the, uh, the editor. Um, mainly because he he came in new. He'd always wanted to be a reporter. I was doing that. He would be he'd been shit, and so he basically said, "Look, you know, I'm not going to let you get anywhere." So I left and applied for the job in the South Pacific. And when I came back from there, um, I rang up TVAM and said, "Well, I'm back," <laughs> and they said, "Well, um, we've only, the only thing we've got is um, overnight produced on the sports desk." no problem at all yeah being a uh, being a sportsman myself <laughs> having I, I do actually hold the coast to coast um record on um the, uh, the tropical atoll of tuvalu uh, for cycling yeah i won the coconut cup it's uh, it's only 350 meters by the way because <laughs> <laughs> it's an atoll it's like a broken smoke ring anyway so i got the job at TVAM, met jeff stelling um who was uh, their uh, tipster and sports uh, reporter. Um, And then when TVAM lost their franchise, and I've been doing various sports reports, um, Jeff uh, said, you know, why don't you have a go at Eurosport? And um, he'd done a few tennis matches. Jeff Stelling did tennis. (laughs) uh, so he couldn't do it one day and said, "Do you want to, do you want to nip over to Paris and do some tennis?" Yeah. <laughs> so it was a bit like that. Then. There was there was nobody uh, sort of scratching around, knocking on the doors because um, experience was everything, and I had some. So off I went to Eurosport, and TVAM lost their franchise, um, and Eurosport were growing at the time. So I ran the news desk, did the reports there, mm-hmm. and then finally because cycling was such a massive part of their output. Um, you know, I took an immediate interest that was in, I was in 92. And I was given track cycling at the Barcelona Olympics. Oh, so, yeah. um, <clears throat> that was where off tube came from. And then, um, in 96 I did the tour of VTT with a very young Cadell Evans, um, <clears throat> who was impregnable at the time. You just could not get a word out of him. Sort of, uh, <laughs> you'd, win a, you'd win a day and you'd go Cadell, amazing day I mean just where how do you describe that I, mean, I have no idea what was it <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I always <laughs> loved Cadell right from that right from that very start trying to find a way I, uh, eventually I said to, because he was you couldn't get a word out to him I said to him Cadell, um, please describe the story of your day and he, he always used to go off into some sort of Zen world. And then he'd say, uh, wow. And then he was off, he just described, he described everything. And we are like, come on, this is supposed to be 30 second fucking clip. we are still be there five minutes later, but I didn't want to break the magic. <laughs> <laughs> so he burnt a lot of tape on Cadell. Anyway, that was the start. In answer to your question, it was a very long answer, that's it.
0: That's and now so sort of 25 years on you've established yourself as the voice of eurosport um and you are known very much for your own idioms and your own phrases and and sometimes made up words some people have called you shakespeare of the what's yeah. commentary desk and how, well, yeah, yeah. how how long did it take if to you develop can't words, make one up. yeah oh uh, to be uh, to be honest
2: it's um it's just inherent it's not anything I even plan how, to, who, how
0: um, does, uh, does... <clears> that my style of... sorry I wanted to ask how does one become a chosen son for instance one of your your great sayings is labeling oh, I... son. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well it's a that's a biblical
0: reference I think
2: uh, th- to be honest I never forget anything I'll be able to tell you in five years what sort of t-shirt you're wearing um, it's very strange. Um, I don't have, have a bin and so my head's full of, um, just full of stuff and quite often my wife will say, Well what are you laughing at? it will just be a re- remembered moment from, I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, which is completely innocuous, uh, you know, me sitting looking through a menu with Dave Duffield in a Turkish restaurant in Staines, you know, I, and I, I, I don't actually remember the fact I, I replay the scene, so I have um, like a photographic memory, yeah. and it's a it's a strange thing because um, what it me I, I, I did a few evenings, theatre evenings, and one chap came out came out to me and he said, "What what is it that you read? Because what is your reading list? And what, what, historically, what, what are the authors that um, you you delve into? Because." Um, the, the way your syntax, he said, I am a linguistics um, uh, teacher, um, lecturer, he was. And he said, your use of the English languages fascinates me. He said, where do you, I mean, who, what are your reference points? I said, I haven't got any. And he was completely and utterly shocked. I said, I've, I have no time to read. I really don't. Uh, it was just, it, you know, it was a struggle to proofread my own book, for goodness sake, because I'm just so busy reading other stuff and researching that reading can be a bit of a chore um, because it's it's work. And so when I'm not working, um, I've, that, the last thing I want to do is read something. So um, it, and it's a bit like TV as well, because you work so closely on the monitors, et cetera, and all the rest of it. The last thing I need to do at the end of an evening is to sit down and watch any TV. So I'm out, out of touch with a lot of uh, a lot of current television as well. And one of my cousins once said, to him, "Well, you've never seen The Bill." So, no, nope, never watched The Bill. <laughs> and and literally, the room stopped. It was a it was a shit wedding. <laughs> <laughs> People, what? what? He's never seen he's never seen The Bill. Yeah, I've never seen it. So cultural references, mine tend to be very very
0: much. Um a long time ago. <laughs> Cause I often I often wonder will there'll be a, a stage of the Tour de France going through some random town in Provence and you'll yeah. point out a restaurant and say, Oh Sean, do you remember when we had a really lovely Cote d'Arone in there? And I do often yeah. wonder is, is this are these actual anecdotes? Are these yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, we've been been
2: rocking uh, the tour for a long time. My first job actually in France was driving a forklift truck when I was uh, 16 in a biscuit factory in a place called Les Puy in uh, Normandy. And that actually is, um, you might want to insert this a little bit earlier. That was where I fell in love with the Tour de France. Um, Because being France, we started at uh, eight o'clock in the morning, but we also got two hour lunch. And we used to go down to this cafe and, of course, the tour was on. And it was baking. You know how hot it's been at the moment? It was that hot then. And so um, we basically watched Bernardino in his pomp. You know, to me, this guy was like the greatest sports person on the planet. He looked like Elvis. You know, he he just looked fabulous. Um, When he was on a bike, he looked like a killer. And I remember the very first sight I ever saw of him uh, was um, we was uh, him prep- just getting himself mentally in the right place um, to start his, um, his time trial. And uh, he, he was in yellow, I think, at the time. But he, the, the, they had this fantastic close-up of his face. And I thought it was a music video. Sort of installed myself in this little cafe. My friend Mark had come over to work with us. But we got the job, by the way. You think, how the hell do you get that? We worked, uh, his father was um, a a foreman at Bassett's Liquorice Allsorts in Sheffield, and they bought this biscuit factory. And so we got a summer job there. That's how that happened. But anyway, uh, Mark was just about to tuck into uh, a bowl of whelks, one of which he curled out and it was black. And he said, what do you think? I said, well, I hate whelks anyway, you know, chew one for half an hour and take it out of my mouth. There's not a mark on it. I don't like it. And he said, Oh well, popped it in his mouth. We watched Bernardino. Two hours later, we were in hospital with Mark with a perforated uh, stomach. He'd thrown up so badly, he'd actually ruptured his stomach. <laughs> so, anyway, don't eat black whelks. Uh, do watch the Tour de France in cafes because it is just absolutely fantastic. The atmosphere in there was amazing. And of course, they were all going nuts. And from that moment, I was absolutely hooked. So, every day, we'd go to the cafe, we'd watch the tour and just totally immersed ourselves in it. And from then I was just madly in love with it. So from um, my age,
0: 16, that would have been mid-70s. And you've been traveling France ever since, sampling its wines, well, I'm sure you've got lived, plenty of anecdotes for TV.
2: Well, yeah. Uh, I actually lived in a place called Resorti. Um, when I was at TVAM, we used to work uh, shifts so it'd be uh, 9 in the evening till 9 in the morning to prep the morning show <coughs> and cut all the uh, pieces that went into the programme. Um, and I'd work three nights one week and four nights the next to cover the overnight uh, production. And so London was mad in the mid-80s. It was so expensive. So I decided to buy myself a house in France. And I missed out on a Berger's place in Po. And... Um, I actually, we used to get the morning papers and then got the observer and I found this uh, this ad. I rang the guy up very early and set off. And when I got there, somebody had bought the house with a visa card bastard. before I actually got there. So I was in a bit of a, I've made my decision that I was going to buy somewhere in France. And in the end, I bought a 14th century farmhouse, 35,000 quid uh, with 20 rooms, a quad that was actually a hectare size with piggeries stables and the rest of it uh, no electricity so it did have water and uh coal stoves for heating that was it and so i used to work in camden um during the night and then on the day i finished i'd drive down to the port and they used to have something called booze cruises um back then which was you paid eight quid to get on the ferry and then you could buy duty-free uh, goods and you basically just Went to France, didn't get off, came back and got off. But there's only eight quid because you're going to buy loads of duty free. So I just got off the other side and did the booze cruise coming back from France as well. I had a little Renault 4 over there. And I used to drive a couple of hours to my farmhouse in this tiny little village, not that far away from Le Touquet. That's probably the nearest place you'll know. Um, and it was amazing because I was in France Profonde. I was like deeply, deeply, you know, the, the conversations were very limited, but it was mainly about, um cattle breeding milk um <laughs> milk quality um and i had a cut of the river my own fishing rights everything. it was it was just amazing so i had camden and all the nutty stuff and then every week i'd spend three four days in uh, northern france just riding around just absolutely loving it so <clears throat> all of those little nuances i have about french roads about you know how they how they build the crown of the road, how, where, how the drainage of those things, all the fields, um, what crops they're going to be growing. Or oh, it was it was a gift. I didn't know it was a gift at the time, but it turned out to be. <clears throat> and also, when um, Eurosport's finally decided that yeah, it was it was going to work, and they were going to start um, expanding, um, they basically ditched everyone who wasn't based in France. So. I'd got this house and in Northern France, so although it was ad hoc, I was considered French. And so I was embedded within the company right from the very beginning. So, you know, I, I, mean, I need a, you know, they're going to have to give me a wall clock or something like that. When, when, <laughs> when the time finally comes. So, yeah, I did a lot of work there in France and of course all the minor races and everything uh, were covered at Eurosport. So I had a great sense of it anyway, within studio and on the road with Sean Kelly, we've, been everywhere. Mm. Um, you know, we've been all around the place. And before I actually went on the road um, and jumped into Dave Harman's seat when he left, um, I was the guy in Paris. So I was in the dungeons. And my job was to do the guide touristique. So I would essentially research all of the chateaus, villages, everything that they were going to go through so that they could throw to me and I'd be able to fill them in. And I've still got all that info in my head. So I did,
0: what, five or six years of genning up on France and... Explaining oh, how to make the perfect cassoulet. Eh? Yeah. Precisely. Long and slow. Pigeon, so is, that... castle, but pigeon is, the, is the secret ingredient. Pigeon? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. Make, i yeah. guess that makes it really rich alongside the haricot beans that's a very dense it, it is a dense meal anyway but exactly but uh yeah if you do it properly
2: a little bit of pigeon <laughs>
0: so this
1: go on james Come on. uh but, but photo, photographic memory um aside how do you how many hours do you spend swatting up for a six hour stage and what does your kind of i always wonder this what does your commentary desk actually look like when in mid-flow what kind of notes do you have and they're it notes stuck to Sean's forehead are you prompting each other beating each other in the ribs or do you have a file of facts or are you actually on a on a laptop looking stuff up how does it work
2: well I'm um, uh, have you seen the codec do you know what I'm talking mm. about if I yeah. say the, the your tea towel that you make yeah, yeah that's right my, my my coveted tea towel um I have uh, all the codecs for all the races that I've done so that's a that's an automatic aid memoir um, I'll have the roadbook from uh, the paper version open so that I've, I'll leave the computer uh, open for, um, for basically all the data that's coming in off the race. We've got the monitors there as well. It's a very tight space, nothing else. And I don't use post-it notes. Um, I just don't need them. Uh, so I, uh, basically, my, my space is probably the easiest to strike at the end of the day. So uh, once it's all done, I just I, I'm done. It's like my file with uh, the codex goes into uh, the bag with the computer, pick up the road book, and I say to Sean, right, I'll see you outside. Half an hour later,
1: <laughs> with his, my bloody bag,
2: where's my bag? Bloody hell. And, uh, you know, he's <laughs> he's got the shittest bag ever. Um, and it's he's, he's one of those things he's, he's held on for years. It's like, it's my red bag. Sean, it's ripped, it's got one handle, it's shit. So, <laughs> and you know that kid at school, um, if you're a, 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 you a poor kid, it would, your, your school bag would just say, I don't know, football or sport, that would it It wasn't branded at all, it was something you got from Woolworths. Well, his is one level below that. It's something he's picked up off a market, so. Which he's given to doing actually. He always buys socks. He's mad about socks. If Sean Kelly's sock collection, it maybe just burns through them, I don't know. But every day you go, I've been to the market. You got any socks,
1: Sean? Of course I've got some bloody socks.
2: (laughs) Honestly, he buys about 30 pairs of socks at every single Grand Tour. Um, and you know, that's just one of the things he does. I don't know if he hands them out like confetti at races. Everyone needs a pair of socks, The you? means have yourself a pair of socks. If he finds a guy who's selling them cheaply, he just fills his boots. Is he uh, getting is he getting? So, yeah, nice, there's
1: not that much on my desk. Is he getting nice, colorful ones? Is that well, where he is that how Sean expresses his uh more sensitive side through his socks? Or <laughs> <laughs> are they're they all just gray. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, the, the, well, there's a little bit of, um, uh, Daedalow worked its way in last year because um, uh, he'd seen this thing about green socks and the German, the German riders. I don't know what it is going on with Germany and green socks, but um, maybe it's uh, their national team sponsor, I don't know. But uh, if you look at some of the track guys, they're, they're all into green socks and suddenly start buying the green cars, like, well, Bloody hell, Sean, they're a bit loud. He says, I am not too sure about them I. I may have to find a German to give them to.
0: I was just going to ask, what, how is it managing Good. with different co-commentators? Because you have to work with five, six, seven different people during the season. I guess they've all got their own different ways of doing stuff. Brian's different to Sean, who's different to Joanna.
2: Yeah, well... The, the, the Rolls-Royce of, um, of, of uh, co-cons is Sean. Is sure. yeah. And one of the things about sitting with a, a co-commentator, if they're not that experienced, they generally tend to... I mean, some, some co-commentators are quite predatory. If they're, they're not used to the game, they, they get in, they think they're about to start a race, and you're the person they're battling with. And so that can be quite interesting when you first start them off. And quite often I'll just tw- switch both mics up and say, listen, this is not a fight between us okay we're not competitors we're part of the same team so bloody behave yourself i've said that a couple of times to various people can't tell you who are, but they're still active <laughs> but nonetheless um and you if you get um if you get a greedy co-coms as well um they will be making a point a scene will change on the screen and they'll say what that is before handing back to you instead of just coming to a natural pause and then you can pick it up if you do it that, the, the correct way um as sean does impeccably he knows that i'm going to pick up the action and so we kind of fold over each other rather nicely yeah. um the the other guys who are are uh, the, uh, the, there at the top level are just basically as good yeah. but they all have their different quirks um matt loves to tell a story so he'll uh, he'll race off uh, brian doesn't often tell any anecdotes he's very much uh, a, a more scientific, clinical um, uh, way of being. Uh, the way he, he analyzes, though, is so, is so good. You know, he has been a DS, and so he he brings in um, an awful lot of... He, he won't actually say where he's got this from, or what the experience was, or I remember such and such, and this happened. He will just tell you the bald facts. And that is that is amazing and very useful so he's, he's very, very clinical. Matt is a bit like me, he's a storyteller, and quite often when we get together, it can get a bit silly <laughs> for our own amusement as well. And, uh, you know, I, lo- I love Matt. I lo- all my co-coms really, really uh, enjoy the company. Of. I, um, I'm a, one of the I'm best a co-coms, quite... actually, who you don't see very often, is Dan Lloyd. Mm. Um, because he's so in touch with everything, and he's also got this extraordinarily dry sense of humour. And yeah. quite often, I mean, I come out of there and uh, people think I must have uh, Ouija doll pins in me because uh, of the amount of s- sly comments he gives me. I find it highly amusing, by the way. It's, there's no bitterness there at all. Um, but, uh, you know, he will constantly remind everyone that, uh, you know, I never raced at any kind of level. Um <laughs> repetitively and it just he'll it, just keep uh, gnawing away at me which uh, I find hilarious but yeah he's he's a very good co-coms uh, doesn't do too much now because he's um, he's basically an on-screen supremo at GCN yeah um, so uh, so yeah they're all very good there are commentators who will turn up with nothing more than a pencil and a smile and they are a pain in the ass um, yeah and again i won't mention who they are but quite often i i mean i've been in a commentary position in a a, in a race and it's hotting up and they'll be on their computer um just seeing how the people that they coach are getting on (laughs) well come on you're being paid to do this so yeah, it is variable, but generally the ones that you see <clears throat> at Eurosport have come through the testing process. One of which is being able to put up with me. <laughs>
0: I, I do enjoy uh, one one thing that Magnus Bankstead does often is you'll pose a question about your Rob Hatch or whoever will, will often say, "Is this the waist winning move?" and he'll just give the one-word answer of, "No." <laughs> <laughs> and fail to elaborate. I do enjoy that's, that. that. That's Magnus doing what, doing a hot
2: potato. <laughs> um, basically, you throw him something, and the thing is, you've got an awful lot of um, a lot of ground to cover, <clears throat> and that makes it makes can make for a. I mean, if he's not just doing it for devilment, that can, that sort of behaviour can make for a very tiring day. <laughs> if you're uh, teeing stuff up and then handing it over, and it just gets knocked straight
0: back over the net, it's like, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> And um, one thing I, I have, so yesterday, for instance, we're recording this on what, Thursday, the 13th of August. Mm. Yesterday was the first stage of the, the Criterium de Dauphine, and as we spoke before we got on air, was um, one, you often get things wrong as a commentator. And people, yeah. as as me and James, as as journalists as well, we often receive plenty of criticism on social media, which for all of its good stuff is also equally bad. Mm. And how does <laughs> how does that sort of stuff affect you? Because of, of all the sports, com- of all the cycling commentators, I think you're the one that probably divides opinion the most for your style. Yeah. And you often, yeah. I've noticed quite a few people often sort of are quite vocal in their criticism well, of you. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, it's a, it's a strange one, really. Um, as to getting affected by it, thankfully it's sort of um it's lessened more and more. Although one guy recently did really get under my skin, I must admit. Um <clears throat> but uh but just because it was it was so um violently abusive and it went on for a long time. Um and uh it, yeah, indeed, I had to actually threaten legal action on the whole. <laughs> um, because he was basically saying things which are just outrageous and untrue <clears throat> um but yeah i i do divide opinion um and we all do and you do make mistakes the thing is that in live broadcast it's not like with all respect chaps um if you are a print journalist mm. You can finesse what you've done. <clears throat> I know we've all got deadlines, um, but you can actually go through and, uh, and shave shave here, drop in a fat there and all the rest of it and make it something that you're ultimately pleased with before you release it. What I do is stream of consciousness stuff. So basically I have to plug my mind into the moment and whatever comes out of my mouth a couple of hours later is is just going by Saturn. You know, it's you it can't retrieve it. So and that's the problem <clears throat> you're dancing on uh, on pinheads here all the time and occasionally you know you'll spike yourself and there's nothing you can do about it as uh, a broadcaster unless <laughs> unless you're doing highlights in which case you can so- make yourself sound like an absolute genius because you'll just go back you'll watch the race live um all our uh, you know i'm sure that uh, uh, yesterday, ITV would have actually been watching the Dauphiné and they'd have gone <laughs> <laughs> and the hiccups at the end, and they would have done a fantastic job on on a highlight show a little bit later on. Um, that's the that's the downside of doing things live. But also, you kind of, as a broadcaster, you accept that you're going to, um, you know, occasionally shoot off a few bullets that don't hit the target, or at worst ricochet back and smack you in the face. So. It's just part of the game. And I think probably in each season, there's probably two moments that really make you think, oh God, why did that happen? And uh, yeah, I had one yesterday, but you know, I'm hoping that that's it <laughs> for the rest of the season, this compressed season. And the rust, I guess, that um, we've all got coming out of um, the lockdown also doesn't help. It also doesn't help that I went to visit my poor old mum the other day and uh, she'd lost her spectacles. She came out of hospital. So I gave her mine. And so I'm actually using three, four-year-old specs and I can't see properly. <laughs> so I think it might have had something to do with the fact that uh, yesterday. Anyway, there you go. That's the difference between number 51 and number 57. One and seven look really similar, especially with these specs.
1: <laughs> do, you ever, uh, do you ever listen to yourself back or... Yeah, hardly, ever, Never. hardly
2: ever. No, I mean, um, obviously, if it's gone particularly well, I'll just listen to it forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, I don't know if you've uh, if you have you heard the audio book.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No, not of audiobooks. Have you heard mine? I've not heard yours. No. Okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, I. I listened to that back and I was, I was actually, I did enjoy that. I'm not, I'm just promoting the book. I, it was actually, I think it's because it, they were my thoughts and my words and I obviously recorded it. I quite enjoyed that tale. So sort of listening back through it, I had to just in case there's any gaffes. So I only listened to it once. I'm not there every night. Um, but no, generally speaking, um, I don't, in fact, uh, people think I've got, must have some massive archive of all the stuff I've done. I've got nothing.
1: Yeah. How much, how much time do you have to spend reciting and practising uh, not just place names, but rider names? Because, you know, it's oh, such yeah. a global sport. It's, a, it's well, incredible the diversity.
2: This is a bet noire of mine, um, because the fact that the French call London, Londres, doesn't bother me at all. And equally, <clears throat> um, people like Michael Morkov, who we all know is Michael Morkov. He knows he's Michael Morkoff. When we say Michael Morkoff, we're talking about him, Michael Morkoff. Um, but people have now started insisting on calling him Mikkel Mirku. And the audience now don't know who the hell we're talking about when we do that. Give it a break. <laughs> there was a magical moment actually. It was a spectacular moment. It was at the London Six, And uh, down in the center was a um, Actually, it may well have been at the at that velodrome, uh, Lee Valley, but the uh, one of the championships, not quite sure. Anyway, um, the daughter, I think daughter or maybe niece of Michael Morgop was in the track centre and was interviewed. And uh, it was Matt Rendell who was very specific about pronouncing names as they would be pronounced by the person, uh, but in the language um, of, of the athlete. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I choose not to do that because um, I I think it's distracting when I think you come, people are listening and then they come to a pronunciation hurdle, which the commentator may well vault over, but people for a moment think, who? And I find that uncomfortable. It should all be about the flow. So I just dial it back a bit, Um, you know, with respect to dial it back. Anyway, he says to her, um, so, whatever her name is, Murko." And she said, uh, Morkov, please. And he said, oh, you you prefer me to mispronounce well? I mean, say your name in, in English. She said, she said yeah, because that's what I'm known as. <laughs> oh, OK. And so the whole interview, it was like nearly at an end. And he just had this moment where he basically just been told, call me Morkov. Anyway, um, that's just one example. There are plenty of others as well where... Is it AG2, AG2R? Well, to me it is, or is it AG2R? (laughs) Um, I think it's AG2R, Um, (laughs) but but anyway. I remember when, do you remember the team Leopard? Yeah. Yeah, the Trek team, yeah. And I said, I call it Leopard, Leopard Trek, that was it. And um, their PR person got in touch and said, it's Leopard. I said, what does it mean? He said, it means leopard. I said, well, (laughs) 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 <laughs> that was the end of that.
0: Um, so, but then again, you know, I do call it Lotto Jumbo. I don't call it Jumbo. So, and you, you, of course, you work with Sean, who is a man who's known for the Tour the, of France. The Tour of France, Paris Nice, and <laughs> yeah. it is good for him. Exactly. <laughs> I um, mean, when you win Paris Nice seven times in a row, you can call it what you like. like
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. So. exactly.
2: Uh, so, yeah, in terms of pronunciation, I basically find a home. I try my very best. I mean, Tom's Squinch took a while, but I got yeah. there. Pogacar, uh, Pogacar. Um, we, we, we had a lot of trouble with him, but we finally settled on Pogacar. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, it, it takes a while uh, to embed in. But I, I think anything that interrupts the flow. And if I'm busy thinking before I say a guy's name how to nuance this, it doesn't, it doesn't help. I, I think there is a cabal of pronounced nicks new word,
1: <laughs>
2: which is um, Daniel Freed loves uh, to pronounce things absolutely spot on. Mm. He's best mates with Rob Hatch who has also a, uh, uh, they were roommates for a long long time, um, who's also very keen on pronouncing things absolutely as they should, as they are uh, locally. Matt Rendell, who is uh, very much embedded within the, w- with those two, works with uh, Freeb on ITV, is also a pronounced stick. So, what happens is, um, all of a sudden, there's a distillation of people to whom this really matters at mm. the top of cycling. And there's, so, there is a diminishing number of us who are waving the flag for just speaking it as you find it. <laughs>
0: have you ever have I you ever had to leader. um have you ever had to give an elbow to Sean, however, of uh, if there's a new rider that you've realized he's sort of mispronouncing, or do you just let him be Sean? Uh, he can do what he likes. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, I mean, Sean uh,
2: as well, doesn't get um, massively animated unless i'm uh, unless I'm um, uh, doing something that is really huge, wrong. And it's usually not something necessarily to do with cycling. Occasionally, he'll just sort of look over and go shake his <laughs> head with that sort of pursed lips thing that he does. But there was one time when um, we, I think it was Thibaut Pinot, had actually almost ripped the door off a uh, camper van to use their toilet. Do you remember that the toilet practice?
0: Was it, was it Sagan or Tapino? I, I remember Sagan.
2: <laughs> no, I don't think it was Sagan, not this one. Um, it was on a descent in the, uh, maybe in the Pyrenees, bloody hot anyway. <clears throat> and um, it was long before uh, poor old Tom had his incident. But um, <laughs> he practically ripped the door off this camper van. <laughs> and uh, we went to a break. And although we cover breaks now, because uh, GCN doesn't go to breaks and their Race Pass app um, mm. continues, um, he basically said uh, in the break, he said he's had a nasty dose of the scutters, and I said the scutters, said, aye the scutters. So anyway, <laughs> I just thought this was a this was a friendly way of saying um, that he'd had a trouser problem. So anyway, we come back, we come back up there, and I said, well, um, Thibaut Pinot, while we've been away, as uh, I'm afraid, he's fallen victim to the scutters. At which point, Sean Kelly leapt up and started star jumping. <laughs> no, uh, it, it, in silence uh, because he didn't want to broadcast it turns out and I didn't know this but in Ireland <clears throat> the Scutters is such a bad description of having a ship I, I don't know there's, apparently there's no equivalent, and the whole of uh, our Irish audience apparently were pissing themselves like Woody Kelly's put him up to that no Kelly's put him up to that and um, I actually had to apologise. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how, what the screaming shites, uh, who knows, it's stuff that you wouldn't say on air, apparently, but it sounded like a benign name to me. So I,
0: I completely tripped up on that one, I'm afraid. So apologies to the audience <laughs> for that. And um, as you mentioned, Carlton, you you sort of hosted your own podcast during lockdown. It's like Carlton Kirby, Cycling Lock-In. Yeah. I was listening to one the other day, the Paris-Roubaix special. Oh, yeah. um, for us fans, Paris-Roubaix is one of the best days in the, in the calendar. Yeah. Uh, but for you, Carlton, it's one of the worst. Not least, I guess, because it's so hard to commentate on, but also because you're just not a massive fan of Roubaix. Roubaix itself is,
2: is horrible. Um, it is <coughs> really not a pleasant place. The velodrome spectacular. The race, of course, is spectacular. No disrespect to the race, but the place... No, I'd give it a wide berth. Um, I think in the book I said it's, uh, it was cheered up by a burnt out car. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, even Sean, there was uh, years ago he said, bloody hell, the commentary position's outside and you're just sitting on concrete. He said, it's the best way of getting piles. <laughs> <laughs> it's how he described uh, Roubaix. And um, he himself as well. I mean, he had had a rough time there. Um, And he's got a shower named after him, bless him, um, uh, there. He's got his own cubicle. Um, But, uh, and you go there and you think, bloody hell, it's fabulous that this is famous because there have been so many photos of riders showering down at the end. But it really is very modest. It was... um, I think uh, Roubaix was heavily bombed in the Second World War and they rebuilt it using um, shoe boxes as a template. It's not a pretty place at all. Um, but it's uh, iconic and we love it for that. Uh, yeah. It's not that I don't like the race, I don't like the place, uh, so then. Yeah, he, he actually, one of, the, one of the things that I was really surprised at with Sean once when we were commentating on it, he said, These covers this is on air he said they'll give you a prostate one hell of a beating <laughs> <laughs> which which i thought was a fantastic line and uh he said he said to me afterwards he said bloody hell sean that was a, that was a bit strong about the old cobbles he said oh honestly i was pissing blood for 10 days after that release. and then it suddenly hit you what he'd actually gone through and why He was actually dialing it down, his experience, rather than dialing it up.
1: Amazing. Do you think that um, that's kind of uh, almost indicative of like how how cycling has become more sanitised over the years? Do you think it's a bit kind of almost stilted in comparison to back in Kelly's day?
2: Well, uh, there's several things, I think, that um, have had a massive impact. Radios was one, and I, I think that just that ability to, you know, just leave the pack behind and the questions that would be answered of them, as there is no panic um, in terms of distances anymore and intermediate times, I think that's probably knocked something out of it. Um, But, you know, they they play on the safety aspect and now it has become very, very sanitised. Ways of racing and uh, battle plans that can be imposed on a peloton by a very strong team, I think has brought it down somewhat but then again you get flashes of uh, brilliance even within some of the more controlling teams like sky Ineos you know bardenekia run notwithstanding etc things like that really um, still hold the magic and I still think it's the greatest sport on the planet but in t- in terms of individual flair I think some of it's been knocked back a bit and that's why we're so enthral enthrall of people like um, like Sagan, like Alaphilippe last year, we're kind of craving that. It almost feels like a throwback, doesn't it, the way that those guys ride because they are so very much individual. Sagan rides and he fries his team. His team are there, not supported. They're there to be burnt out by him on his behalf, which is a very different way of uh, approaching it. He's not bothered about lead-out trains or anything like that. He just wants them to make everybody else suffer because he'll suffer less.
0: Which is why we all enjoyed Julian Alaphilippe last year, because yeah. he rides as if it's the 1950s.
2: Exactly that. Precisely that. That's yeah. exactly the point, is that he was a throwback to the days of old. That's why people love Tommy Volcker as well. Completely unpredictable. You know, he'd attack when there was nobody thinking of attacking, and it was just the most stupid thing to do. And and then you know, we just absolutely loved him for it. And you get you're getting less of that. But I'm thinking that, you know, maybe with this new wave that we're getting in from uh, the east uh, and indeed uh, the, the far west, Colombia. Um, but, uh, yeah, the eastern bloc producing some... Fan- or the near east in uh, within um, Europe producing some spectacular riders. My book, by the way, is the only book that's... Uh, the only other
0: language that's been translated into is Slovenian. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> uh, says a lot. I mean, cycling must be becoming a, a quickly there their sort of chosen sport with the success of Slovenian yeah. cycling at the moment. Well, well,
2: I've been interviewed by Slovenian media as well. And, and, um, and, and yes, it's, I said, um, you know, without being disrespectful, what else is there? <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, we've got some good rally drivers and
0: uh, various other, um, uh, but nothing quite like it. Nothing quite and like it. It is a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, I've never mean. been to Slovenia. It's- one um, of the, the hidden gems of Europe, hmm. to use a cliche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you working for them, Jay? Are you backing well, up
1: their, their, their mass casino
0: campaign? Ironically, late, late the, it's hidden gems based off of the Emerald River that runs through it, which is spectacular.
1: <laughs> All right. Col- Colton, I was I, going I, to ask... I've asked, got an invite to go, actually, so <laughs> I might be able to take him up. Yeah, go ahead. Um, do, do you... I mean, obviously, rider safety, paramount, but do you lament, as commentators, the advent of the helmet? Oh, and, the, and the sunglasses?
2: Um, no, not at all. Um, the, the the helmet for me. I mean, I got into a tussle with uh, Chris Boardman about it because I, I I I actually said that I think that whenever a bike is sold, a helmet has to be should be sold compulsorily with it. Um, you know, if you if you've got the money to buy a bike, then you should be buying a helmet. Uh, and I know there's a massive campaign that basically said, well, some of the safest countries in the world to cycle. Uh, because of the infrastructure they put in place, have the least helmet use. Um, so, but in competition, um, I, I've, I've come to think that, that it's just stupid not to. Um, the UCI rule was was brought in, and um, I, I think it was a blessing. I think it was it was two thousand and three, I think, wasn't it, uh, that it came in as, as compulsory, which doesn't seem that long ago, to be honest. No. Um, I mean, it's a it's a bugger for uh, for rider recognition, and quite often, uh, I, I've, quite often, you get asked when you're in a privileged position such as such as I am, um, what what would uh, what developments do you think there should be? Um, one I said was, um, I think they should have uh, a number on the front of their helmet, little patch with their, with the, with the rider number there. I, th- I thought that would help everyone, not only the commentators but the audience as well. So there's a heads-up indication um, of the rider, and they're always showing their faces. So you know it would be instantaneous. That would be great. That was one. Um, the uh, the uh, Giro asked me what they could do to improve their race and move them closer to the tour, and I said, well, um, if you want to do something unique, have a stage winners jersey, um, something like a checkered flag, something like that, so that. Uh, Everyone would see who'd won the race the day before, and if it was a sprinter who was fagging it up a mountain, who's got the uh, the checkered flag jersey on, it, you know that's something to carry. That's wonderful. Mm. Um, but apparently there is a UCI rule about how many different jerseys can be issued within a race, and it's fourth, so there's no room for any more, which is a bugger.
0: You know who cares? Let them have five. How for... bo- how boring of the UCI. Yeah. Well, oh. one thing I would love to see is to borrow from football is is, is names on the back yeah. of jerseys, yeah. and even maybe even numbers. I think didn't um, Quebeca moot it. I think they did. Uh, the, was it, I was—I believe didn't. Um, was it what was the old Swiss team? I am did have names, and they got in loads of trouble.
2: Yeah, and, and there was all kinds of other things as well. I think uh, Quebeca actually also raced sleeveless. Do you remember that? And they said it I looked too much good. like basketball tops. so that was the end of that as well and they look really cool I mean you know if you if you're going to impose uh disc brakes on everybody why can't you just allow a little bit of leeway when it comes to the apparel that they race in as well who knows I mean it's a mystery that
0: place is a mystery and to to finish off Carlton as we as I know that you're you're also in the process of selling a house so you're very busy Uh, sold oh it's sold oh well (laughs) five days foot, foot off the gas um <laughs> i can um i've got some qu- qu- relatively quick fire questions i'd love to ask you um starting off with uh what is the best race you've ever commentated on
2: huh um the one i the one that i enjoyed the most
0: yeah that you you look back on it and say that was genuinely probably the best race i've ever watched
2: gosh that's so t- that's really difficult I've, you know i've never really but never really pondered it um ge- generally speaking the race that i enjoy commentating the most um, is the terreno adriatico um where it sits within because the, there's, there's so many there's so many different editions of it but where it sits within the calendar it's such an optimistic race yeah. also the fact that um, when it nor, where it normally sits, you get so close to the riders, and because it's it's hardly attended at all. So as a fan, one of your readers would would if you want to get near to the superstars, maybe even stay in the same hotel. That's the one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, free COVID. I guess we, we have to amend all that. So I'd say that was would be um, my favourite um, stage race. favourite tour is the welter, because it is just such a friendly race. It's also a celebration at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's the optimism of uh, of the Tirreno, um, of the short stage races, of the Grand Tours. It's last chance saloon for many riders. Um, for others, uh, to save a season. For others, it's uh, it's a celebratory race. So there's this very there's very much a sort of party atmosphere surrounds that. And the vibe of the race has changed completely since they shortened some of the sort of lunatic long stages that were nudging up around 300 kilometers and all that kind of nonsense. Uh, Big transitions through some of their desert areas where the only thing that was moving really were the vultures, Um, just amazing. They do have vultures. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, uh, in terms of the one day races, of all the the monuments, uh, Flanders for me is the best because it's just such a fantastic celebration can't go there with Kelly, Well, we can't spend too much time with Kelly um, at that race because you he, he can't walk 10 feet without somebody mobbing him. And uh, and sometimes Kelly Kelly's taken up running, he, he jogs a lot. And the reason is he just wants to get away from people. I'm off, I'm out of here. And you'll just see a shitty red bag disappearing out
0: there.
2: <laughs> In terms of uh, GB races, um, I absolutely love the uh, whenever they do the National Hill climb up uh, at Winnets Pass in Derbyshire. absolutely love that as a kid I used to go and sort of sit um, between uh, Castleton and Edale halfway up with signs saying boulders and uh, one came down once, crushed a car
0: <laughs> proving that geological time includes today people. be careful. And what's, yeah. the, what's the worst race you have to commentate on or the one that you dread? Tour of Hungary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry, Hungary. Um, bless them. It's uh, there was a few years ago that they had the tour of Hungary, and uh, I was supposed to do it. They said it's okay. We're going to take the uh, international feed because it's um, it's only going to be as a highlight. So we'll chop up the international feed, and uh, so we don't need you. And the guy that they chose to do the commentary had obviously written the guidebook. And I think he was just a student of I it. Mean, could speak English, and so he translated the guidebook to the race. And it was hilarious that the race started, and he was talking about the 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 uh, excuse me, he was talking about the swimming pool um, <laughs> nearby. Oh, sorry about that. Um, and, and various other bits and pieces. Um, so. He was he was truly dreadful. He knew nothing about uh, nothing about cycling at all. So I was dragged in to do that. But they had um, a fixed camera uh, for the last five hundred metres, and the other camera was on a motorcycle that kept breaking up <clears throat> because they'd done. Um, I don't think the relay was working properly, and it was absolutely sheeting down with rain, and so you couldn't recognise anybody. It was it was. It was a disaster to have to uh to, to drive master. Just a second. Just Steph, I'm still on the interview. Can I call you later? All right, bye.
0: There we are. The wife. <laughs> and um, where is the best place you visited as a commentator? Just not for commentary purposes, but for food and just enjoyment of the place. Turkey. Mm. Um, I remember we stayed. We got
2: billeted once i mean we're we're used to occasionally getting places that look like uh, feel like dignitas you know just uh, uh, my worst ever room, I think was under a staircase in what was what was quite clearly once had been a broom cupboard. It was windowless apart from this small little hatch that you opened up, and it was in a, it was in a place that had sulphurous springs, and I was right next door to one, so when you opened the window, all you got was the smell of eggs. Um, you know rotten eggs so that was a disaster and then a few weeks later headed off to um, the tour of turkey we stayed in a place in Fetia called the uh, hillside beach resort bloody hell I thought I'd gone died, and gone to heaven (laughs) just absolutely spectacular look it up Um, it's uh, but yeah the tour of turkey when we used to do it on site, um, Turkey had its troubles. They were always trying to get to world tour status and they treated everyone, including all the UCI commissaires and everything like kings. It was just wonderful. I I don't think it was to try and buy favour, but to show off the best of Turkey. And um, yeah, that was exceptional. It's such a beautiful country. I mean, all of the coastal areas and up into the mountains and off towards Syria, which unfortunately we can't go to anymore. Mm. um, Areas that are just gobsmoking the best um, baklava in the world is syrian baklava and the turks all go to the border and buy special boxes of it and they give it as a gift and i got a kilo of baklava uh, in the commentary position and i've never tasted anything like it i mean you think you know your baklava wait till you go to syria <laughs>
0: you get the chance um, you and the who's the best rider you've ever had the pleasure of commentating on the one that's really stuck out for you. Well, I mentioned
2: him earlier, the one that I absolutely loved commentating on and seeing his career grow just because I was there at the very beginning is Cadell Evans. Yeah. Um, when he won the world championships, I cried. And, uh, and when he won the tour, I did the same. Yeah. He's just, I, I, I felt like I was, I shared the journey with him as it were. And, you know, he, he Cadell probably doesn't really know me from Adam. I'm sure he's aware of me, but, um, but, I, I just have a great deal of affection for the man because I shared such a long journey with him and I enjoyed watching him in terms of um, hilarity and gung-ho-ness. Um, I absolutely loved to- watching Tommy Vokler and calling him um, and some of the circus antics that he got up to and, you know, just some of the stuff that his panache led him into. I kind of felt uh, a, a sort of a brotherly bond really, because if you're prepared to, be unique and go for it yourself and to hell with what anyone thinks Uh, you can get yourself into trouble (laughs) as a writer or a commentator. So yeah, um, Tommy I really enjoyed watching as well. Um, Of the superstars and all the, those who've had great success elsewhere and some of the classics men, Fabian Cancellara. Um, I remember in uh, Strada Bianchi uh, when uh, one of his wins there, um, he sort of came off the podium and, uh, you know there was very few of us there in the um in the uh, uh the uh, the grand square there at the top and he came down to talk to us afterwards and i just thought it was so nice there was just such a nice bloke um so yeah in terms of um, being one of the most pleasant it would probably be him um on the flip side of that the mystery men um I guess the, 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 the most mysterious, really, and the hardest to, uh, to, to actually get through to would be, uh, would be Chris Froom himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think it's a shame that Chris didn't... Uh, I, I'm very fond of Chris, and I think he's done an amazing job, <clears throat> um, of course. And I, I I'd hate it when he's, mal- he's, he's maligned. I think it's, it's really unfair. Uh, and I know that there was questions um, as to uh, various ethics, Ethical lines that may or may not have been pushed towards um, by uh, Team Sky, as was. But I don't think that was Chris Froome's fault. I think his um, the, the fact that he was uh, part of a, an extraordinarily focused operation didn't engender himself to the to the fans in France. So I have always stuck up for Chris Froome, um, no matter what. Even when even when all that doping nonsense was. Was hanging over him. Uh, we we had an embedded belief that actually he would come through, and I'm glad he did because uh, you know I'd hung a lot of um, a lot of my faith on him, and he he, he repaid me. I think the only thing that Chris ever did wrong was not to um, honour the country he he represents by spending more time here. Yeah. When he won the Tour de France if he'd not gone to the Saitama International Criterium in Japan and dressed up as a sumo man and fired a few uh, uh, arrows wearing traditional costume, and I'm sure got um, a a healthy uh, paycheck for turning up, if he'd have come to the UK and done a couple of ride outs with a thousand children, um, I think he'd have been knighted by now. Mm.
0: Yeah. Even even if he'd have skipped a welter or two for a tour of Britain earlier in his career, I think he would have uh, been sort of embedded more into our society.
2: Yeah, it's a shame that uh, it's almost a, P- a missed PR opportunity, but by him. Um, but uh, you know, um, but then you know, within what was Sky, and of course many other teams as well, one of my favourite riders, British riders, um, would be Mark Cavendish. Um, we we had a, an uncomfortable relationship at the beginning. Um, I think Mark has very sets very very high standards <clears throat> for himself, and as a result, he sets very very high standards for everyone around him as well, because he treats everyone else as he would treat himself. And for that, you have to take credit. But it doesn't doesn't matter if you're it, it doesn't feel so pleasant if you're on the opposite end of it. And I remember when he won um, Milan San Remo, I. I honestly wasn't sure whether he'd won it or not. Um, and it, I think he took umbrage at that. And then there was a, a race in Qatar where I was commentating in a truck, looking at a black and white old valve monitor. The engineers, by the way, in the back of the truck, they all love the HD devices. So I was only the world feed commentator, but my voice was going out live on Eurosport. And um, so I had t-shirts pinned, race t-shirts pinned in this cab. It was baking. It must've been 40 degrees, something like that. And I could hardly see the monitor. And I remember just calling his lead out because it was the only thing I could, I could actually vaguely recognize. I think it was HTC days. Um, And the the train formed and then fell fell apart and then formed again. And I described it as a mess. And of course he went back to the hotel, watched it um, that evening and just thought I was a complete bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, the next day, Matt Randall's interviewing him um, post-race, because he's won, uh, because they had got the train sorted out, and he'd done done the job. And uh, the first thing he said is, get that Carlton Kirby down here, I want to give him a good slap. (laughs) 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 To which Matt Randall went, ha, 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 ha. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) A few years later, we're at the Tour of Turkey, I think it was in 2012. Um, maybe, maybe a couple of years later. I th- think it was that. Um, that's a couple of years after, perhaps. But anyway, uh, they're herding everyone into taxis at the airport, and uh, I'm sitting in this sort of people carrier with Brian Smith, and they're, they're, the the, the guy says, "In, in, 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 in!" Plop. Mark Cameron sits down next to us. I said, Oh no, Mark. You're going to give me that slap now?" <laughs> and uh, <coughs> he was, "No, no. You know it's, uh, you know what it's like." You know anyway from that moment on we both have a, a passion for motorcycles and uh, it, he loves uh, motocross in, in particular and I think it was a time when he thought he might actually have a go at that um, but uh, we shall wait and see whether that's, that happens but we spent our time shooting the breeze with Brian Smith sitting there Think, I what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> we were just talking about racing and, and bikes and all the rest we just, I just didn't he didn't want to talk about cycling and neither did I. And we've both got families. Um, I had my, my kids came to my wife and I very late. And uh, so our children are pretty much the same age as well. So whenever we bump into each other on races around the world, we we kind of just, we just talk about family and other stuff. We don't talk about racing. And I think he, that's maybe a little bit of an oasis for him uh, because everyone, whenever they're in front of a superstar like Mark Cavendish, undoubtedly is just want to talk about, stuff that they are interested in rather than stuff that he might be interested in in that moment. And so I think if you give people that respect, um, you kind of get it back. And so, yeah,
0: Mark would have to be up there as one of my favourites as well. And finally, um, it's like asking you to pick your favourite child, but if you had to pick a favourite co-commentator, could you? Well, the safe
2: answer would be Sean Kelly, but, um, I think I'll just leave it at that. Then nobody's disappointed. <laughs> Sean, Ke- Sean Kelly and his shit red bag. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Now I love Sean. And, and um, you know, long may he uh, long may he continue to be in the Commons position and uh, and share some of that with me. That would be great.
0: Carlton, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I'm yeah. going to let you go because you've got to go and commentate on the Criterium to Dauphine this afternoon. I have, yeah. Call time is actually midday, so um, I'm going to have to get my bag together and piss off. As you mentioned earlier, you had that podcast, the cycling, uh, the Carlton Kirby cycling lock-in that people can find on all good podcast outlets. Uh, Your book, The Magic Spanner, uh, is out now. Updated, actually. It can be bought in all good bookshops. Two new chapters, actually. The the,
2: uh, last year's tour um, is is a terrific new chapter, because it was such a spectacular tour, and France really nearly did it. Mm. This year's tour, of course, has
0: been designed for them to do it. Mm. So um, let's see if they do. And yeah, and we look forward to hearing your voice throughout whatever more of this season we've managed to get, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you very much, Carlton. All Cheers. the best. Cheers. You see you later. Bye. So, ladies and gentlemen, Carlton Kirby.
1: Carlton Kirby. A uh, lovely house, I noticed. You can't Lonely. see that. Obviously, because this is a podcast, but he had a
0: very lovely... decadent, uh, yeah, it was. It was, um, kind of so um... many, so many Faberge eggs,
1: yeah. A bit Queen of Versailles <laughs> was the velour on the sofa and lovely, uh, lovely paint scheme. I don't know if that was the wife or Carlton, but some really complimentary colors going on but there. We're, lovely we're, chandelier. Gracious.
0: we're gracious that you give us some time. He's a very busy man, especially with this condensed calendar. Mm. Uh, he's a man who relies on his voice for his for his finances. So to spend an hour talking or more than an hour talking to us was, uh, we were very privileged for that. Um, He, as I mentioned, is a very divisive character, isn't he, James? Uh, I actually saw some very notable people on social media criticizing Carlton yesterday. Um, But I think he's a bit of a, a treasure that we should behold
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's a bit of a John Motson for cycling. He is an institution, a legend. And as he pointed out, it is really hard talking all the time, uh, especially when nothing's going on in the chosen sport that you're commentating on. And also, yeah, as we've said many times in, uh, always we touched upon many times there, it's kind of hard to pick out people from crowds. And they're not, you know, these guys are sometimes sitting in the back of a bus with, a tiny little TV with it being piped in. They can't see anything. It's really uncomfortable. They're not having a lovely time themselves. And then this big sprint melee happens at the end and you've got to call who's won it. And that's yeah. tough. What you see on TV is a million times better than what they're often seeing when they're sitting in their commentary box. So they are going to make mistakes.
0: And people don't realize, we didn't mention it there, but Carlton Kirby doesn't just commentate on cycling. He also commentates on MotoGP a uh, few Olympic sports, so if you turn on Eurosport at any time of the day, you may be graced with the, the vernacular of Carlson, uh telling you about a Cote de Rhone wine that he once tried, but yeah. over the top of some, I don't know, biathlon. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what
1: I very much enjoyed is uh, you pointing to his kind of Kirbyisms, mm. so the, the chosen son kind of thing, and coming out with your own, where you refi- uh, re, um, refer to it as Idisms,
0: I'm, I'm not sure what an, what an idism is, but an idism is uh, something that you would possibly say, Joe, an idism. That, that word is indicative of my career as a broadcaster, clearly, or lack I think of
1: it. I think if you're busy creating words, then you're doing something right. You're going. You're pushing the boundaries.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, that's the episode. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. As ever, uh, leave us a review on Apple, listen to us, download Um see us at cyclist.co.uk forward slash cyclist magazine podcast uh get in touch still yet again what are we three four months into this and not a, a single fact about greg wallace um rather disappointing but anyway for now james i'll talk to you later
1: hopefully free to to